Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Man, Peter, it feels like it's been a while since uh, you and I were just doing a regular episode together. It has been a while. So for all the new listeners, and I know we've had a bunch lately, welcome, and welcome to hearing what a normal episode sounds like. Yeah, we've, we had the top 200 solo games for BGG. We've had Jason Perez, who's joined the family recently, uh, doing his uh, Wednesday episodes. So those are all great. I definitely enjoy those, but it's nice to just come back and talk about a game and some design stuff. Yep. So today we're going to be talking about Escape the Dark Sector. Yeah, and then we're going to get into a little bit of a design chat on emergent story coming out of a game and what that means to us and how we think it's done well and maybe not so well. Sure. So before we get into that, I know we've probably played a lot because it has been a while, but I know there's been a lot of things going on with the channel as well. So we want to talk through a little bit of that. Sure. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, we should have hit 20,000 subscribers and had a little video on the YouTube channel. So thank you to everyone who subscribed to the channel and supported us in whatever way you thought was best. We really appreciate it. And it's pretty amazing that we've uh, grown so much so quickly. And as part of that, we announced plans. Now they haven't come to fruition yet, but we have a new logo. You can see that in the video. We are uh, working on rebranding ourselves, kind of fixing up our uh, web pages and everything. And, and on that uh, note, we are going to have a website hopefully coming soon and uh, even some merch for sale on there. Yeah, and one of the big things that we've already started, and some of you may know about it and some may not, is we have a Twitch channel now. And I know Steve, who uh, you've probably heard every other week for the last three years now, he is heading up that Twitch channel, and I'm going to be on there too. So we're going to have not only gameplays there, but we're going to do co-op news as well as a feature. And uh, our first one should have already happened by the time you're listening to this. Yeah, and we're also looking into setting up a uh, new YouTube channel, a separate one that'll just be focused on saving our live plays, like the best of the best from those, so that, you know, if you want to see the live content, you can go over there, and if you want to stick with the kind of pre-recorded, more edited content, you can stick with the original one-stop co-op shop. So lots of cool stuff on the horizon, and uh, thank you to everyone who's been joining us on this journey, or if you just got here, I hope you enjoy what you hear and what you see. Yeah, and actually, we also did Extra Life just a few weeks ago, so we got some gaming in there, and all of that was streamed live on Twitch. So head over to Twitch if you want to see any of the videos from Extra Life as well. Well, or don't, because Peter and I lost <laughs> repeatedly, like, to a ridiculous extent. I did not win a single game out of the, uh, you know, eight or nine that I played that day. I, I got blanked as well. So yeah, we shouldn't probably tell people that, because then the, we're going to lose all our... Uh, co-op cred here oh no it's, it's already gone man <laughs> they, they know now that anytime i win a game in a video i must have obviously cheated and uh, fudged the dice because i can't win to save my life in a live setting nice i will say that i was drinking during some of the recording so by the last video i was in which was marvel champions it was fairly entertaining at that point especially the last half hour of that video was pretty good there you go. So skip the rest and just watch Marvel. And actually, Peter, I think uh, the videos will have timed out by the time this airs on the Twitch channel, but hopefully we'll have the new YouTube channel set up by the time this is on. Future Peter here, and yes, as predicted, those videos did expire. So you can catch them on our new YouTube channel, which is One Stop Co-op Shop Streamed. That's streamed spelled S-T-R-E-A-M-E-D. 
So check out all those Extra Life videos and some more videos we've done as well, including our newsfeed there. So that's One Stop Co-op Shop Streamed. All right, but uh, kind of on the same note, uh, we'd like to thank some of our Patreon supporters because just like our 20,000 subscribers, that's a big number. It's crazy to say that. We have some amazing people who support us every month through Patreon and get some cool uh, rewards in the process. Although I know for basically all of them, it's not about the rewards. It's just about supporting the channel. But this week, just to thank a few of them, we'd like to thank Jason Lance. He's a co-op MVP. Web Thingy, a co-op MVP. And Hanna Lukasova, sorry if I got your name wrong, Hanna, a co-op MVP. So uh, three MVPs, Jason, WebThingy, and Hanna, thank you all so much. And thank you to all our patrons, everyone who's reviewed our podcast on Apple or wherever you're listening, uh, everyone who's uh, subscribed to the YouTube channel, everyone who's a part of our Discord, who's watching us on Twitch. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with One Stop Co-op Shop, and any way you uh, engage with us, we really appreciate having you. So speaking of the co-op MVPs, I know you've been playing a lot of stuff online with them, stuff that's upcoming on Kickstarter. And one of the games I played with you was Burn Cycle. So you want to talk about some of those plays? Yeah, so I played Burn Cycle a ton on TTS. And then uh, Chip Theory Games was cool enough to send me one of their limited prototypes. And it's an interesting one because I was just uh, feeling some comments as of the day of this recording about people kind of saying how it looks rougher than what they're used to from uh, Chip Theory Games. And I didn't realize this because I've never covered any of this stuff from the Kickstarter stage, but talking to the staff, they say that's what all their games are like when they're first kickstarting them. They kickstart, and a lot of companies do this, they kickstart when the development's not done yet. It actually seems kind of rare (laughs) these days for for companies to kickstart with what is a completed design. But I think it's cool that they said like they kind of let reviewers in earlier than they have in the past. And I think you'd probably agree, Peter, it wasn't a completely smooth experience, right? Yeah, no, it wasn't smooth, but I definitely liked what I saw there. Certainly better than I've liked most of their games in the past. A lot of their games are a little more complicated than what I typically like, Hoplomachus being the exception, but Burn Cycle was right there, kind of in my sweet spot. Now, I could see the potential for them to keep layering stuff on top of it, so it depends what kind of development work goes into it. Is it going to be development for variety, where they add in a bunch of stuff, and then it gets more complicated than I would want? Or are they going to chisel away at some of the rough spots and actually make the game more streamlined? So it'll be interesting to see where the game goes from here. But I did enjoy what I played a bit, especially since Mike's like, this is a stealth game. You definitely want to go around, avoid the guards. (laughs) And my first action was literally to open the door and stab one of the guards in the head. So definitely enjoyed that. That was definitely (laughs) an epic moment. Mike's like, I don't think you're going to be able to beat him. I'm like, what do I need to get? He's like, "Uh, 10 10 successes. I'm like, 10 successes? Not a problem. I went in, just smacked him upside the head. So I, I made that, that made me very happy. Yeah, and actually, I've seen uh, more like aggressive approaches in playing it more as well. And I, I like that the game kind of offers both of those things. I still think, uh, especially on floor two that I've played, stealth becomes a little bit more important potentially because they do a lot more damage and are harder to kill. But I like that you can just take out a guard if you need to. Like that kind of fits into the stealth genre as well. But yeah, Burn Cycle is uh, is good. I can't really see it doing like a too many bones for me and becoming like maybe a top 10 game of all time. But it's uh, definitely solid. I enjoy what I've played. Wow, that's pretty amazing that Too Many Bones has gone from a game that we weren't the highest on when we first reviewed it to a top 10 game of all time for you. That's crazy. Uh, it's so fun. I mean, I, I do think it benefits a lot from clearer rules, knowing the game better, having a better community to ask questions playing more co-op than solo. And the big one is just, it's a game that benefits from spending more on it and getting more expansions. Like, I don't know if you just get the core box, if you're going to love it as much as I do. I'm pretty sure you won't. But 
when you start like adding in more of those gear locks and it's like kind of the fun, crazy stuff you can do. I don't know. It's hard to beat that game. Well, a game that I've been loving lately is in the Hall of the Mountain King. And this game was originally designed as a competitive game, but the expansion that they came out with made it solo and co-op. And I was a little hesitant because it is a point scoring game, but they kind of took the points out completely. So it's not a beat your own score kind of a game. They have a completely new objective, but it falls in line with how you play the game normally anyway. So playing the co-op and solo version You will get better at what you need to do to play well at the game, but it's not exactly the same thing. They take out some of the scoring stuff and they add in other elements as well to kind of challenge you along the way. So I know we're going to be covering that one soon, but I'm really digging on that game. And that one has a polyomino element, right? Yes, you are building polyominoes on the board. You're trying to take these statues from the outside of the board and move them to the inside of the board. And in the co-op and solo version, there are things that keep happening and your tiles keep getting destroyed. And so you kind of have to keep ahead of the pace of the way the game is fighting against you. And you have to make interesting decisions that you wouldn't normally have to make in the game about like the size of tiles and things like that based on what's getting destroyed and how quickly things are happening. And then you also have these curses face up that fight against you as well. And you have to decide which ones you want to get rid of and which ones you're okay dealing with. And so there's a lot of elements in the co-op and solo version, which aren't in the base game, but that I found to be a really interesting challenge. And I was a little bit worried that the two-player co-op was going to be a little bit easier, but... I actually didn't find that to be the case. I found it just as challenging as the solo. So my worries with that were actually abated pretty quickly. And that's great. And I was going to say this might be uh, like December into January might be the month of the polyomino because I just got in my review copy of Kingdom Rush from Lucky Duck Games, which is a tower defense game with polyomino combat. And I also bought a copy of Isle of Cats that I'll be covering the solo mode of on the channel. And I've been playing that uh, competitive with my son in the family mode, and that is just a joy to play. I I really haven't played almost any Polyomino except for City Skylines, another cooperative Polyomino game. And that one was fine, but uh, these two seem great, and I'm excited to play Hall of the Mountain King too. So yeah, I think we'll definitely have to have a discussion about that sometime soon and kind of the different ways to use that mechanic. Sure, you played Baron Park also, but that was a while ago. Yeah, that's true, that's true. But that wasn't, that didn't have any uh, co-op, I guess, right? No, 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 no. I don't even think they had Solo in it. And for those of you who are here and you're like, wait a minute, the name of your show is Co-op Cast. Why are you talking about so much Solo? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, the YouTube channel has always been dedicated to both. I know here we've mostly been dedicated to Co-op Talk. But honestly, during the pandemic, it's really been hard to get any gaming in, let alone co-op gaming. So we've leaned a little heavier into the solo content, and that's probably why you're hearing a little bit more. Plus, we invited Jason into the channel, and as you've heard from him, a lot of his content is solo as well. But don't worry, we're not going away from co-ops anytime soon. So we are going to focus mainly on that, even though we do discuss solo here. Yeah, and, and I'm doing my best, and I know Peter's doing his best. Like, we play a lot of stuff on TTS now, but if TTS isn't available, it's pretty much just multi-handing it or playing with our families <laughs> to figure out what the co-op uh, element might look like and might feel like. So, yeah, we're still trying to get that co-op experience to cover these games honestly and fairly, even though it's uh, tough in this time. 
Well, and the other part of it is that not a lot's been released this year, right? It's been a year that's really weird for the industry. I mean, I guess if you look in totality, a bunch of stuff's been releasing, but a lot of the content right now seems to be coming out on Kickstarter, which means we're not going to get it for another year or two. And I know some games I was super excited about, and we talked about at the end of the year episode last year, they never came out this year. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only one uh, might be Alter Quest, which is delivering now, but... That's one of the only ones that I'm excited about from last year that has come, you know? Right, and we don't have it yet. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not playing it. I'm seeing everyone in the Discord discuss it. <laughs> yeah, so it's been an interesting year. I know Osworn, one of my biggest ones, I was hoping would come out this year, and it didn't. So, yeah, we've been kind of searching for stuff in the co-op verse, but, you know, I'm glad we're digging into some of these older ones. Like, in the Hall of Mountain Kings, not new. I guess the co-op expansion is. So it, it'll be nice to dig into that. And Escape the Dark Sector, which we're covering today, is not brand brand new. They do have an expansion coming out on Kickstarter right now. But Escape the Dark Castle, we played about a year ago and we talked about covering and we never got to that one. So I'm glad. I mean, the one thing about COVID is it slowed things down a little bit. And so we have been getting to some of these other games that we might not have been able to cover in the past. Well, actually, Escape the Dark Sector only came out uh, maybe three weeks ago or four weeks ago. He just timed the expansion Kickstarter to be very soon after delivery of the base game, which I think is pretty smart. Yes, absolutely. And we'll get into some of the reasons why that might be smart in a minute. Well, yeah, let's jump right in. Yeah, sounds good. For those of you who don't know, how we cover games is we talk about the top five things we think you need to know about the game, starting with number five, which is the least important, and working our way up to number one, which we think is the most important. Before we get to that, though, we'll cover a little bit of the theme. Escape the Dark Sector, it has a very clear theme, but it's a nebulous theme at the same time. Basically, you've been captured, and you're escaping jail, and you basically have to work your way through some alien encounters through this prison world, and escape, find your ship, and get out of here. Yeah, we should say it's sci-fi, so all this is happening in space. (laughs) Yes, it is definitely in a dark sector, that is for sure. So, Mike, why don't you cover the basics of the rules? Yeah, so if you uh, watched any of my videos on Escape the Dark Castle, you might already be familiar with this. But the basic idea is you have this uh, big deck of encounters, and at the bottom of it is a boss. And you're just trying to survive and gear up through those encounters so that you can defeat the boss. If you beat the boss, you win. But each player will have a character, and if you're playing solo, you have to control at least a couple. And uh, the characters have like their own life total, and each have their own unique single die. So you each have AD6 with your character's name on it with uh, different mixtures of these three symbols. And basically, you just go through the encounters one at a time. You have to choose who's leading the encounter, and they might suffer some special effect or gain some special bonus. But you'll have a uh, combat, which has kind of its own rules. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. And besides that, a lot of things will take damage from you, or they'll give you the chance to earn items to power up your characters. You're just trying to kind of grind through this little dungeon or dark sector as it is and uh, get to the end and beat that boss without any of you dying completely, running out of life. That's the basics of the game. It's pretty simple. Yeah, no, I have a feeling this is going to be a little bit quicker review than most of ours. That's why I didn't mind covering some games at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, you want me to start off, Peter? Sure. Go for it. All right. So my number five pro for me. And that kind of goes with the rules explanation I just gave. This game is super quick and easy to just throw on a table. I played it with my eight-year-old. He loves it. I played it with my family. I played it solo. And it's very easy to just kind of put on the table, explain the rules for like 30 seconds, or not even explain them and just turn over the first card and they'll kind of figure it out as you go. So yeah, it's just uh, very nice that it's so friendly and kind of easy to get into. The art could be a little disturbing for really young kids. But it's not like too bad. It's nothing super grotesque. 
So I think anybody like seven and up, you can just throw this on the table and start playing and they'll have a good time. Yeah, the art style is interesting. It's all black and white pictures, but it can be a little disturbing at some points. My son really got into it. As a reminder, my son's 13. He really got into it. My daughter, even who's nine, got into the art as well. So I do think they did a good job with the artwork. But my number five is the items in the game. And the way the game works is you're going to go through these different adventure cards and you're going to be going on encounters and you might be fighting something or you might just run into somebody who gives you something or they're very different. I don't want to get into that right now, but let's get back to the items. At the end of each of these cards, you will typically get a reward. And a lot of times you're going to gain item cards or maybe you'll have to do a harder task and you'll get item cards. But if you do an easier task, you don't get item cards. So you're constantly getting this influx of item cards throughout the game. And this is a little bit of a mix for me because some of the items are really cool when you first get them and it's like you get different weapons or you get stim packs that like let you control your dice a little bit better. You know, there's some mitigation in there. The weapons are different, but they're not that different. And that's where it becomes kind of a mix for me because while the items are cool and I like how they tried to differentiate them, at some point the items get a little bit samey. And even in a two-player game, we almost go all the way through the item deck. So Yes, it's cool and there's variety, but I feel like at the end I'm drawing items and I don't need them anymore and I've kind of maxed out what I really want. Maybe every once in a while we'll change out our items just for the sake of change, I feel like. But yeah, so the items are pro and a con. I really like what they do with them, but I think they're a little bit limited. Yeah, and I generally agree with you. That goes right into my uh, number four, which is my only full-on con for the game. And that's kind of also goes with my number five. It's that the game is pretty simple and can even kind of be repetitive. And I think the items you were just talking about fall into that, in that in the end, it's such a straightforward game that there aren't that many kind of levers to play around with in the item design. So they're going to kind of fall into the same basic camps and basic ideas. And the thing is, if you look at Escape the Dark Castle, they came out with these three expansions and those added on kind of fun, very minimalistic, but still like cool, unique mechanics on top of the basic game, which is very straightforward. And on Kickstarter right now, uh, I think almost about to end by the time this episode airs, they also have three new expansions for this one that should probably do the same thing. And I'm not saying you need that. I've thoroughly enjoyed the game without it, but I think the game is going to seem pretty straightforward and kind of you're doing the same basic stuff especially for gamers instead of like uh, casual gamers who just like want to enjoy the story every once in a while. So I do think those expansions, I'm glad that uh, he's doing that because I'm backing it right now for the expansions. And I think the game needs it to kind of have longer legs and last longer with just the base game. It's not going to be a, you know, play it every day kind of game. Well, and it gets repetitive, as you said, not only throughout the individual game, and we'll get into a little bit more how I feel about that in a little bit, but even the encounters get repetitive, even though they might be different. You might be fighting a zombie versus a cyborg versus a this versus a that. But at the end of the day, it's really the combat because it's handled the same. You know, it can get repetitive in that way. So I am looking forward to, and I never played the Escape the Dark Castle expansions. I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what they can do to to add some variety and spice into there. Yeah, I mean, like, literally they each add one little mechanic. Like, one of them adds, like, curses, and one of them adds poison, and one of them adds uh, these little, like, ghosts and, like, uh, allies that can help you. And it seems little on the whole, but it just kind of adds one more thing for the game. And if you put them all together, then I think it's a really nice kind of varied experience. 
Yeah, no, that sounds really cool. And that's my next thing, which is the variety in the encounter cards. And we've kind of touched on this a little bit here, which is they can seem to get repetitive, but that's in mechanics. If you're in this for the story, the variety in the cards is actually quite good. And in fact, even though you're getting these snippets in time, at one point in the last game I played with my son, we encountered this assassin who came out of this like portal, shot us, and then we could decide whether we just like try to scare him back into the portal or whether we wanted to fight him. And we kind of scared him away. Well, later on, we got shot by an assassin again. And then later on, we encountered another ins- assassin. So it was kind of cool. We were like, you know, kind of built this emergent narrative. And that's what our design discussion is going to be about. Even though the cards mechanically work very similarly, I think they do a good job with the story and a very good job of making each of the cards feel different, even though you're doing the exact same thing on them. So I did like the variety of the cards, even though mechanically they weren't that different. You're either doing a skill test or you are just taking damage or you are fighting something. So I didn't think that variety was great, but I thought the variety in the story was really good. And so I I liked how those encounter cards work. Yeah, I will say that even though things can sometimes feel repetitive and the variety isn't amazing, I do think that the designer did a great job of (laughs) kind of wringing as much variety as he could out of this basic system. Because you'll have encounters that like give you a choice of whether to go for an item. You'll have encounters that are different kinds of combats. You'll have encounters where like you're in a football match and you have to like each uh, roll dice against each other and try to match up symbols. Like it all comes down to pretty basic mechanics, but there is a nice little bit of variety in here. And my number three kind of goes along with what you just said, Peter, which is uh, also a pro for me, the, the theme and the atmosphere. I think, you know, even if the mechanics are not always exciting, the illustrations for me, I think they're great. I know like in the YouTube video, some people didn't like them. I guess it's kind of like a dungeon degenerate situation. Like whenever you have these kind of old school, kind of more uh, interesting, <laughs> unique art styles, uh, some people are going to love it and some people are going to hate it. But for me, it's great. It makes me think of like old adventure books and stuff. And I love the like flavor text. Like you said, this kind of like these wacky adventures you can have and how things kind of seem to gel together sometimes when you're playing by accident or whatever. I think it's really a fun kind of world to play around in, and the adventure is pretty exciting each time you uh, dive into it. Yeah, no, I agree. So getting into my number three, I talk about the combat system here. And I don't remember Escape the Dark Castle as well. I remember playing it one day with you, and we you sat down and kind of taught it to us slash didn't teach it to us, because again, it's the kind of game you could put down and just start playing. I don't remember how different that combat system is there, But here, it seems a little bit more complex than what it was there because you have a ranged phase and you can keep attacking ranged as long as you want, basically until your weapons run out of ammo. And then you can get into this melee phase where you're doing hand-to-hand combat, where you're using your special character dice. And again, none of it's very complicated. You roll your special character dice if you match a symbol that they have in front of them. So they get a certain number of dice at the beginning. They usually get like, three or four dice, depending on the enemy you're fighting, and then an extra black dice per player. The three or four that are out there are are on one of these three symbols Mike's was talking about. So it's the fists, the cunning, and wisdom, I think, are the three. And then you roll your dice, and depending on your character, you'll have either more or less chance of succeeding on each of these symbols. So you just roll your dice, whatever symbol you get. If you match one of the dice that's still on the enemy, you remove it. 
And when all their dice are removed, you defeat the enemy. Com- uh, shooting combat's a little bit more complicated. You roll a certain number of hits and they're weak or, or not to certain types of ammunition that you're using. But it's all a little bit complicated, but not really. Like, it's pretty straightforward when you get to down to it at the end of the day. But they definitely have added some things here, some extra choices. I think before it was just you're rolling your normal dice and all those items you get do modify what you do here. But now they've added some extra options. You either fought before or you didn't and you stayed out of it, basically meaning you couldn't take damage. But now they give you once a combat, somebody can heal. And once a combat, somebody can flank the enemy as well. So there are a couple of extra options here. But again, it's all still pretty straightforward. And all in all, I really like the way the combat system's done, especially the way the melee's done. I really think it's unique and interesting even though it doesn't seem interesting because you're literally just rolling a dice and hoping you get the right symbols yeah my number two is the combat and i also generally liked it it's, it's a little bit mixed for me just because and not even for me i think it's fine for what it is i don't really need more so when i say it's mixed i don't mean that i wish it was more complicated but i do just want to kind of name it as a mix because a lot of people will look at this and it will be too simple for them you know like you need to just kind of accept the combat for what it is But that being said, if you compare it to Escape the Dark Castle combat, I think it's great because they added just a little bit more choice in what Peter was saying, you know, with uh, being able to stay in ranged combat or go to close combat. Just a little bit more variety in those ranged weapons versus the close combat weapons. And honestly, I still like Escape the Dark Castle for what it does. It's just like very, very quick combat, even simpler to explain. But for my personal taste, I liked the little bit of extra options here. So it's not amazing, like complex combat where you're going to feel super clever, but it's fun to roll dice and groan or cheer when you get the exact right thing. It does give you like those high, exciting moments. And that's all I really need out of a combat system for a game like this. I don't remember Escape the Dark Castle, but what I do remember is not having to look up the combat rules ever and thinking it was very straightforward. At the end of the day, I don't know which one I like better. We'll talk about that more as we get into to deeper points and we get to our final thoughts. But it's interesting to me. You know me. I tend to lean toward the lighter system, even though this one isn't overly complicated. And again, it's not really complicated at all. But the little bit of complication where I might have to look something up might take away from it a little bit. And I'll have to think on that a little bit more as we keep talking here. Yeah, for for me, I thought the uh, little quick reference card they give you for combat, I thought that was enough. Like, they kind of have cards for every, like, special action you can do, and they explain right on the card what you can do. So after, like, two plays, I didn't need to look up anything. But I think it is a little bit, (laughs) just the tiniest bit more intimidating to learn the first time. But it's not intimidating at all. It's still very simple. Yes, absolutely. So my number two actually kind of goes along with number three. I debated whether to separate these or not. But I think it's worth mentioning as its own separate thing, and that's the damaging system. There's two different systems I'm talking about here. Number one is the way characters' health is tracked, and number two is the way enemies' health works. I talked about the enemy health system a little bit, but I think it's worth mentioning again. I really like how you not only have a set set of dice for each enemy where you know like these three or four dice are going to be the same each time but then you roll randomly to determine how the enemy is going to be a little bit different each time even if you do end up getting the same card i like how the enemies do different amount of damage 
And I like how they're each vulnerable or not vulnerable to different ammo. I just like in general how this system works. It's very clean. Again, you just roll your dice. It tells you sometimes you'll have two symbols. If you're really good at one of those three attributes, you'll have two symbols on it. And it'll have a little shield around it, which will help block damage coming in. But the part I'm really focused on here is the way the enemy's dice are on there and the way they're taken off. And it leads to just enough tension. You know, you always get to that moment because if you defeat them in melee combat before they get to attack you back, then they don't do any damage. So there's always that give and take, push your luck at the end there where it's like, okay, does everybody want to jump in on this combat just so we make sure we kill them? Or does somebody have time to go heal? Or maybe we just put the person in there that's most likely to hit them and don't have the other people go in just in case we fail. So I think there's enough push your luck in the end there that I really think it's really interesting. And then the other part of that is I love how players help this track too. And this is different from Escape the Dark Castle. But basically you have this grid which shows you your life and you know you move over one space and maybe you lost two life. So you move over one space and move down two, meaning you lost two life. So you start with like 12 or something and you go down to 10, right? And then you draw a line between those two and then maybe you heal up one. So the next line you move over, you put it up one. And so at the end, you've got this little line that looks like you know, you can track your progress throughout, as it were, or your health progress throughout. You can see how you were damaged and how it went up and healed. And at the end of the day, it kind of looks like a neat like graph of like, oh my gosh, this descent into darkness as you get closer and closer to death. So I really like the visual with how they tracked your health as well. So I, again, a little bit differentiated from the combat system, but I really like how damage is done here. Yeah, and I like that you're calling out kind of the specific mechanics because I took a kind of wider view for a lot of my points, but I think that's a great point. I think the health system is really clever. And to focus in a bit on what you were saying about the enemy dice and the push your luck aspect, that's very similar to my number one, which I don't know, I called it a mix in my review, but it's really mostly a pro for me. And that's the fact that the game can be random. Like, you are flipping these encounter cards, and some of them are just straight up worse than others. Some of them just straight up give you a reward or let you totally avoid the encounter. Some of the bosses feel tougher than others. Some of the items feel better than others. So there is, like, some kind of uh, input luck in terms of what encounter you draw or whatever that you cannot avoid. And that could be kind of off-putting for some people. But what I love is that uh, once you're actually in the encounter with the entire gameplay just being like rolling some D6s and seeing if you hit or not, there's so much kind of risk-reward choice, and like you said, push-your-luck choice in here. Almost every encounter will give you either an enemy with less health, but they do more damage to you, or an enemy with more health, but they do less damage to you. Many encounters will give you an option to risk taking some damage to get some items or avoid it. You know, and there's like tons of little things like that, And your character dice are so clear and straightforward in terms of what your chances are. Like, you have a 50% chance of rolling a fist. You have a 25% chance of rolling an eyeball. I just think it really lends itself to, like, intelligent risk-reward choices and intelligent pushing your luck. And it's still a fairly random game, and you still could lose or win based on your die rolls. But I don't feel like the game is stupid. I still feel like I get to, you know, if not be clever, at least make intelligent choices and you know, take those gut shots when I need to. Like, oh man, we really want those items. Even though there's a good chance we'll lose, I'm going to go for it. And kind of like I said in the combat earlier, those give you those extreme like happiness moments and the extremely depressing moments that make games a more long lasting kind of memorable experience. 
And if this game has anything going for it, I think it's the experience. That's the thing that stands out the most to me. Like these, even in a game that is very random and seems kind of railroaded as you just go through these cards and you set up at the beginning of the game, you still have a lot of little minuscule choices that actually do have great importance when you add them all up over the course of your game. And when you're looking at, you know, what you just said, Peter, your little health track, like EKG meter of uh, how you survived or didn't throughout the course of the play. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that it's been a little while since we've done a review together because it seemed like for a while there we were matching up on all our points and we were really like, even though we weren't even playing together anymore and we hadn't played the games together, we seemed to be in the same mindset. And I feel like this time away has really like separated us. And actually my number one, I don't think you mentioned at all, which is the story of this game. And like I said, I'm not talking about the overarching story. I'm talking about the story on each cards. And again, I talked about this a little bit with the variety of the cards, but the variety of the cards didn't bother me that there wasn't much because of this story element. This is the thing that sticks out to me. When you first said we're going to play Escape the Dark Castle and you explained the mechanics, which were basically just rolling this dice over and over and hoping you got the same symbols as the enemy. And skill checks are the same, by the way. Like you're rolling the dice to see if you get the skill you need to (laughs) to pass it. So, I mean, you literally have one custom D6 for each character. And yes, you can mitigate it with items and things like that. So the mechanics themselves, like if you literally read the rule book, you're going to be like, what is this game? Why would anybody ever play it? But the thing that sticks out and the thing that brings me back to this game and the reason I still want to play it, if I haven't played it now, it's not the kind of game I want to play 10 times in a row, right? I get bored with it at that point. But every once in a while, maybe even every week, every month, I look at it and I go, you know what? I bet I'm going to have a fun time when I play this. So I guess I'm getting a little bit into final thoughts, but the story itself sticks out so much. And even though the cards are repetitive as far as what you're doing, fighting challenges or whatever, there's still quite a bit of them, and I haven't seen all of them. So it's amazing. They take the same concepts and repeat them over and over, but the narrative they introduce is just really, really good. And it was really good with Escape the Dark Castle, too. It's what made me want to keep coming back to the game, because you don't see everything. And while the cards repeat themselves, the story itself is, is really good to me. I don't know. I, you as an English teacher, what do you think? What did you think about the writing? Yeah, I mean, you, you all know me. Almost always, like, the little choices you have to make and the tough uh, tactical things is what's going to be at the top for me. But no, I, I think the theme is great. Like, I love little stories. and But yeah, in the end, I think the story is great. And without it, I don't know if I would want to play this game. With it, I think it's going to stay in my collection, if only to pull out with my family every once in a while, you know? Yeah, so final thoughts, I think, are both pretty positive, right? I mean, for a dumb little game, and that's, I mean, that's how I would describe it. It's a dumb little game without a lot of choices, but the story itself, if if you get into that, I think you'll have a great time with it. And if you don't mind push your luck and you don't mind some dice luck, I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, I'm right there too. Just be like, just be clear what you're getting. <laughs> it is not, it is not Gloomhaven. It's not a huge game. It's not an infinitely varied game. It's not a high strategy game. But I have never sat down to play it without having a really good time. And I can say the same about Escape the Dark Castle. And, you know, Escape the Dark Castle gets expensive if you try to get, like, the giant collector's box and all the expansions right now. But the core game for Escape the Dark Sector and core game for Escape the Dark Castle are pretty inexpensive. I think all three of the expansions on the Kickstarter, I think I'm in for, like, 30 bucks or 40 bucks to get all three of them. So it's really not like a expensive game, which I think is good. I think that's perfect because it's a light experience and I don't want to spend $200 on this kind of a game necessarily. But for what I'm paying, I think uh, I got all the value I wanted out of it, you know? 
Absolutely, yeah. So definitely recommend for me at least to play it or even watch us play it. I think you'll get a lot of value out of that as well. And if you watch Mike's playthrough on the YouTube channel, I think you'll really get a good feel for what this game is. All right, and let's get into our design discussion. So this is emergent storytelling, and Peter and I both kind of uh, mentioned it already. But let's first kind of define terms. So... Peter, I'll give what I think of emergent storytelling as and as a kind of opposed to like a set narrative. And then if you want to add anything or kind of give your own definition. Sure. So for me, the idea of emergent storytelling is, you know, it's not a choose your own adventure book where everything is already written there and you just read along. It's not a Madara, although I guess there could even be some uh, emergent storytelling in kind of the combat of Madara. But Madara is a dungeon crawler with a campaign and you read through a book and like everything that's going to happen and all your characterization and stuff like kind of comes from that. So it's not where like the narrative is kind of written ahead of time and you just make choices in it, but it's also not no narrative. <laughs> it's not chess. Like you need to have some theme to kind of enable the in emergent storytelling, but this is where like the, uh, the beats in the game, the things that happen, the coincidences of luck, as Peter mentioned earlier with like his assassin story they lead to the possibility of players kind of creating connectivity and creating narratives in their head. Now, I still think, uh, see if you agree with this, Peter, but I think that emergent narrative does rely upon the players to a great extent. And like, you know, some groups just aren't going to (laughs) care. Yes, correct. Uh, Yeah. So did I miss anything or does that sound like about right for kind of defining our terms? No, that's exactly right. And I think emergent narrative can be present in games with a very directive narrative, or as people would call it in video games, on Rails games, right? So I think you can have emergent narrative in as much as what you said. Yes, maybe we both have to kill the boss, but the way you did it was you hid and went around a corner and did this and that and the other thing, and I went straight at him you know, head first, which is, we know how I'm going to do it, right? Like run in the room. So it's, it's almost like a role-playing situation, you know, when they give you enough variety of mechanics that you can make different choices and kind of build the story yourself. I, I think that's a good way to create emergent narrative in a game. Although Escape the Dark Sector and Escape the Dark Castle don't do that. And I still feel like they have emergent narrative. So I, I guess there's other ways of creating it as well. Well, and it's funny, that's what I wanted to focus on, because I didn't even think about the variety in play styles, but you're right, that's a great way to have emergent narrative. Like, again, uh, for a video game example, uh, the Deus Ex series is one of my favorites uh, going back, and that's one where you could be, like, very stealth-focused or very combat-focused, and the kind of story of your play and the story of your game will be very different based on that. Or, yeah, like you said, burn cycle, punching the robot or sneaking by him. Um, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, for me, what stuck out the most, and it's a totally different thing, but you're absolutely right that the variety also contributes to it. For me, what uh, gives me the best emergent narrative, and this is what I like to see in designs with emergent narrative, is uh, discrete, specific events, but that don't have a connective tissue in and of themselves. And what the heck am I talking about? Let me give you a few examples to kind of illustrate this, some cooperative examples. So Escape the Dark Sector has this. You have these discrete, these single cards that are very specific in what's happening, but they do not inherently have any connection to each other except that they came out in the same game you're playing. Another example, uh, Eldritch Horror or Arkham Horror 2nd Edition. Not so much Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, which I think is one of the failures for it for me, having less emergent narrative. 
But Arkham Horror Second Edition Eldritch Horror, you go to this random location, you draw this random card, and like a witch puts a curse on you or something crazy. And it's a very discreet, like kind of separate event. It doesn't automatically connect to other things. But the reason for me that these are the best chances for emergent narrative is that they have uh, very specific things. So they stick in your mind, they're memorable, but because they don't have that connection already built in, they leave the players who want to, because again, it is a player choice to an extent or a group choice. They leave the players who want to the option to fill in those gaps. Like your thing, Peter, you know, you had a assassin, you let hop through a portal and then uh, the assassin came back. Those are very like specific things. They came out in a random order, but you had the opportunity and it was kind of easy for you to do so to uh, connect those things in your mind. So that's what does it the most for me. And I think it usually comes through like random events, you know, or random encounters, like those kind of adventure games that have those sort of things give me the strongest emergent narrative personally. Again, this is just me uh, because you have like all these random things happening, but you have the chance to uh, throw them together in some fun way and kind of create a story in your head or in the group's kind of like communal telling. Well, and it's funny because I don't like that at all, which is interesting. <laughs> Yeah, after that big, long narrative, soliloquy, you went through it all, and I'm going to say that I'm exactly the opposite. In fact, this is one of the few games that does it well for me, and I think the reason it does it well is because you got like 16 cards, and each of them is unique, but quick, right? So yeah, you can draw a parallel. Like, it doesn't draw a parallel for you, but you could tell you're getting into much more and more dangerous situations just the way it comes out, the ordering it comes out, and like... There's at least some bond that connects them. And I'll tell you a game that fails at this for me. And it's one of your favorite games. Obviously, one of your top 10. We just talked about it. It's Too Many Bones. Yep. Too Many Bones, you could be walking along, doing really well. And next thing you know, you're tied up in a sack somewhere. It's like, well, wait a minute. What happened there? You know? <laughs> like, And for me, it breaks the narrative a little bit. And it becomes too disjointed. I think this is something that can be a failure as well. And I think the problem is if you only have six different events and they're so far apart from each other that it's hard to draw lines between them, I, I think you can lose some narrative then. Or if it's too similar to something you've already done, you go, oh, well, wasn't I already fighting these guys? And yes, to some degree, you can make a cool story out of that. But to another degree, and I think part of it is also the time between the story but that, that loses me in too many bones, right? If each encounter is 10, 15, 20 minutes, and now I'm getting back into a totally new story, I've already lost my story thread. Whereas in Escape the Dark Sector, each card's taking you five minutes or less, for the most part, maybe you go up to 10, and then you're right back into the story again. So for me, I think it really depends the amount of time between these adventures, whether I enjoy it in a game or not. Well, it sounds to me like you might also care a lot about cohesion of the story, because Escape the Dark Sector it naturally has the progression of having like level one, then level two, then level three. So the designer knew what order you would see these things in. And they're all like in the same basic setting. So they tend to kind of go together. And, you know, if you want to compare Arkham Horror second edition, Arkham Horror third edition, I kind of had negative uh, things to point out about Arkham Horror third edition, but I I would imagine you might've found more story there because, you know, you have a specific deck that is for that scenario and like all of the cards refer to the same kind of cultists or all the cards refer to the same kind of demons. And it feels more like a cohesive story. So do you think that's true that like you want the, the elements to go together better instead of being completely random? 
Yes, similar to Cthulhu Death May Die, where you're shuffling decks together, and one of them's going to relate to the Great Old One, and the other one's going to relate to the scenario you're in. Absolutely. I think that makes a huge difference. I don't mind the random story elements, and I don't want to see all of them every time I go into the game. But at the same time, I do want them to somewhat be tied together. And again, I think the duration between getting these events is a huge part of that for me as well like in arkham and in cthulhu death may die every round you're getting a new event so after each round every, and it's not just one event in fact you're each going through your own events a lot of times um in arkham where you're getting something at one location and somebody else is getting something somewhere else so the story kind of comes together because every round you're kind of forced into getting them And it's not trying to build a scenario in and of itself. It is going along that scenario. Now, everybody's going to be different about this, right? So some people may even say that's not emergent narrative because the game is telling you this story. And so it's the way you're putting it together in your mind. But I mean, that's a little bit more on rails, but you know, I I think that says something too. It says that emergent narrative isn't the best all the time and it's not going to be the best for everybody. Now, I think we can probably both agree that emergent narrative depends quite a lot on a random element and sometimes a pretty heavy random element, right? Sure. I mean, some people might have really good emergent narrative in Gloomhaven with like the battles now they play out, but I definitely never felt as much emergent narrative in a game like that. That's kind of like very strategic and I'm very much in my hand kind of planning tactical plays. Like I think I had more emergent narrative in... I don't know, dungeon crawler like Descent, for example, like just kind of the goofy monsters that happen to pop out and the traps I spring and those kind of things. Well, even Alien Encounters Legendary, you flip over something and it's a face hugger, right? And it jumps out at you. And again, not necessarily emergent narrative, but I mean, it to me, it kind of leads to that, right? You're like, oh my gosh, he's infected. When's this thing going to come out? And I guess the game is leading you down that path and it's kind of teaching you that way, but it's up to the players. I know for me, the tension goes up, everything goes up and I feel more invested and more involved. And again, maybe I'm a little astray here from what an immersion narrative is, but for me, the narrative created by the story leads me to these moments of like panic and dread. And then at the end, I can think back of how this happened and where it went. So yes, the game gave me a narrative, but at the same time, because things happen quickly in that game, I can lead it back to the beginning, like when it actually happened. Oh man, if I hadn't scanned that room, then I would have never got the face hugger, you know, and now I'm creating my own story around that, even though the game kind of gave it to me to some degrees. Well, yeah, and I think, like, for me personally, I need a little bit of structure to kind of feel like I have the opportunity to form a narrative in my head. Like, if a game is super abstract or it's just like a collection of cards, like, I haven't played um, Call to Adventure that Jason covered on the channel, but I, I didn't get the sense from that that I would enjoy telling a story from that because it's like almost nothing they just have some cards there and like they it's almost like they're telling you to make an emergent narrative and i almost buck against that it's like well don't tell me i have to tell a story like i just want to play and then if the story kind of emerges and we have fun with it that's what's best for me and my groups you know yeah i agree it's almost like the difference between a storytelling game and the game creating moments to give you story yeah Another example that pops out in my mind, in our game, Salvation Road, I know we talk about it a lot, but this is a story that sticks out in my mind, and we talk about it a lot because we're very close to it, right? We have a lot of stories surrounding it. So when we were pitching the game to AJ, who's the head guy at Van Ryder Games, 
when we showed him the game, at the end of the game, he had choices to make and he could have chosen to be the hero with his character. And he did, even though it could have cost their whole group everything, right? And so he went out of his way to go rescue somebody else, basically, to waste some of their precious fuel, grab them and bring them back just because it was like nobody gets left behind. And and so and actually rules for the game developed out of that because we're like, yeah, that's a really cool mentality. Like no, no survivor gets left behind. And so we even developed that into the rules. But that narrative right there that he created by his actions really led to an just an awesome moment in the game. And while the game itself may be very mechanical, very Euro-y, we left enough wiggle room for people to create their own narrative from that you know, from the actions they're taking. And so that's just one example that came to mind, but a lot of games do this. For me, it's one of the coolest moments in gaming. When you talk about a game later, it's typically emergent narrative you're referring to. Now, yes, maybe something like Pandemic Legacy, which has very specific moments. I'm talking about season one here that like really cool story comes out and, you know, they tell you this story. Sometimes those are memorable as well. I mean, certainly the one in Pandemic Legacy season one is. But a lot of my other stories from gaming come from emergent narrative. That's one of my favorite things about gaming. And I think if you leave room for emergent narrative, it makes those games more memorable. Yeah. And I do want to say it's, it's so we've already said this, but it's so dependent on the group and the people and like the night sometimes. So it's kind of like trying to capture like magic. Like, I don't know if you can just set out to design a game with emergent narrative. I, that might be a fool's errand. Because, like, for example, I said Gloomhaven for me didn't have much, generally speaking. It felt like more of a tactical exercise, a very enjoyable, well-designed one. I'm not trying to disparage it. But uh, the Gloomhaven group that plays through our Discord every week, they have these after-session reports that are extremely, like, narrative-filled and fun and, like, remember all the little cool moments of when this character did this to do this to this character and this person abandoned everybody to go get gold. So I think, uh, you know, if you have the right group, if the game just hits the right way... Yeah, like you said, Peter, it's it's the best thing about gaming almost, you know, like almost I, I put great emergent narratives right up there with like the amazing tactical plays, the amazing like puzzle solving that make you feel like a genius, like some of my my top most fun moments in gaming period. Yeah, but that isn't really emergent narrative in Gloomhaven because doesn't somebody always run off to get gold? Or maybe it is <laughs> emergent narrative, but it's like the same one. It's like it's like a broken record. Oh, like okay, somebody's, somebody's always that person that's going to run off and grab gold while the rest of the group's like, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're progressing here. What are you doing? But maybe that's just my group. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but even the first game that got us together, that we played together, and we've talked about it before, Battleground Fantasy Warfare, that game didn't put narrative in the game you know we were just fighting over control points but i remember i wrote a session report for our first battle together and i talked about this ancient artifact that we were fighting over in the bushes over here and you know we're fighting over this artifact and i remember we didn't know each other very well but you posted on bgg you're like wait we were fighting over an artifact and you stole it from me what the heck i didn't even know what was going on but that's you know a story i created in my own mind while i was playing the game you know that's what we're going for at this control point here so i think you're right it is going to be very play dependent. But with that being said, are there any tricks that we can do as designers to like help people get to that space? I mean, we've said some of them already. I think uh, random elements and sometimes, I mean, we kind of went both ways, you know, like disparate elements that don't go together too well. So you give the players the opportunity to connect them, but not like too far apart. (laughs) So that's, it just becomes like ridiculous to try to connect them together. 
Yeah, I think that's the key for me right there is you've got to have – well, I think it's a couple of things. Number one is you got to have it close enough and you can't have such big gaps between your not only player turns but also gaps in time, right? If we just defeated an enemy and now we're tied up in a sack, well, how did that happen? How long were we talking about? Was this a day later, a month later, a year later? So like what happened in that day and why did I miss all that story, right? I feel like I missed out on something if you have big gaps in your story as well. But the other part of it I I think is very key, at least for me, your design really needs to mesh with your theme. That integration of design and theme is going to lead to these narrative moments. That moment where somebody's thirsty in the desert and they just need to look for water and go find that. That moment where you're trying to build up this fort and if you don't build up this defense tower before the enemies come, they're going to get you. Or whatever it ends up being. Even a game like Rococo, if you're not building the best dresses, then people aren't going to be talking about you, you know, as a fashion designer, and you're not going to get notoriety for that. So emergent narrative can come in a lot of different ways, and it's going to be different for each person. But I think the closer your mechanics tie into the theme of the game, the more opportunity you create for emergent narrative. Yeah, and something I just thought of, it kind of ties into my randomness point, but to be more specific... And we've talked about this in previous discussions, and I know when we worked with Richard Launius, this was something that he really emphasized that I think is important, and that's the highs and the lows. You're going to have more kind of memorability. That's not a word. That's <laughs> okay. Go be, with it. Yeah, yeah. An event will be more memorable uh, when it is like very lucky or very unlucky, when it is very amazing or very terrible. And building those in, assuming your design can handle that kind of randomness, building those in will allow the game to have more emergent narrative because it will seem more narrative worthy, if that makes sense. Like I would say uh, Dawn of the Zeds, I think, is a very emergent narrative friendly game. You know, that's because of those huge swings, like the time that your sheriff like just happened to get like five good shots in a row and like took down an entire like horde of zombies all by himself. Like that immediately lends itself to a narrative or by the same token, when like your most amazing fighter went riding into combat on a horse against like the weakest horde ever should have just mop them up. And uh, then you drew an event and a random zombie spawned behind him and ate him. Like that's a very memorable thing also that lends itself to storytelling. So I think if your game, again, this might go better in adventure games and stuff, but if your game kind of has those highs and those lows then it will make it seem more worthy of telling a story about. Yeah, and just a funny story about that. TC Jerry and I were playing Mansions of Madness once, and it's, you know, three hours into the game. And actually, you, me, and Jerry had a a similar experience, but a little different, where three hours into the game, the app said, you ran out of time, the world collapsed, it ate you, whatever. I mean, that's a huge swing into motion. And it did different things to each of us. TC basically said, what? I just spent three hours and, you know, this is memorable. All of us this day still talk about this moment. TC will never play the game again ever because of this. For me, it sticks out in my mind. It's a negative experience, but it's still an experience that I had and it's not keeping me away from playing that game. And I think Jerry really enjoyed that. You know, he's like, well, we took too long. We didn't do what we needed to do and we were punished for it. And so it was... But for all of us, it's a very memorable experience. Now, the experience you, Jerry, and I had where we did all this stuff and the app crashed. So that's a, <laughs> that's a memorable experience for something completely different. This is before it auto-saved and all that stuff. And we were literally like three hours into the game and the app crashed. So 
Sometimes the narrative can be created from outside the game, but I do think those big splash moments really do have an impact on people. And some people are going to love your game for it. And some people are going to hate it. And I think that's okay. I used to be a very much like keep it down the middle kind of a person. So everybody kind of likes your game, but nobody's going to remember your game nowadays with 3000 games coming out a year. If they kind of like it, or if they kind of remember it, you know, you want to have something that sticks out in their mind. And I think, even sometimes positive and negative experience, you know, they do the same thing. People will have a visceral reaction to your game and it creates discussion. All right. So yeah, go play some games with Emergent Narrative and Escape the Dark Sector is one we both recommend. But until uh, next week, we will uh, see you at the next stop. Hope you all have a good time gaming. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop. Or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list. Before we get to that, though, we'll cover a little bit of the theme and escape the Dark Scepter. Wow, why do I keep saying Scepter? I mean, you just want it to be a fantasy game, clearly. (laughs) You don't want to play a sci-fi game. (laughs) Obviously. And while the item deck is small and repetitive, and the events repeat themselves, like I'm repeating myself here, so I'm going to cut a lot of this, but... (laughs) (laughs) The game creating moments to give you story. Another example that... Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was just saying, yeah, you're good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Mike. Yeah. I'm emerging from your basement. I'm right behind you. <laughs> I'm in my basement. How would that work? <laughs> <laughs>